Hey y'all, thank you so much for tuning in to Take a Seat. I am joined by Mr. James Lapbaker, a community leader and advocate that I'm really so happy to know and so happy for you all to learn more about in this episode. I actually credit Mr. Baker as a historical treasure of walking the streets of Jackson because of his fight for equality and his commitment to implement change and challenge leaders. We met at Jackson State University um, this was my, let's see, my senior year leading into my last semester, I was filming a documentary with my production team about the massacre that occurred on campus on May 15, 1970. Now at that time, this was called Jackson State College. And uh, Mr. Baker, he was an eyewitness during the time of the tragedy that um, killed two students and injured a dozen others and that documentary is called a tragedy to triumph it is available on youtube so please if you have the chance uh, please watch that documentary because that is history and that is so important and just to spread awareness about that because a lot of people do not know about that moment that happened at Jackson State. I like to say that it shifted the trajectory of Jackson State. It was again a sad time but it was it also gave light to so many for the years to come including myself including myself. So uh, with further ado I'd like for Mr. Lat Baker just to say hello and and we'll get rocking and rolling with the questions. Oh um, hello, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm James Lapbaker. <laughs> um, 1970 graduate of Jackson State College. Yes, yes. That shooting that I just mentioned, it led to the success and the uprise into what the university is today. And for listeners, kind of explain what happened just in a brief synopsis if you can and how that led to your increased activism and civil leadership. I came to Jackson State in 1966 and those years, the three years or just the four years leading up to May 15th or May 14th, um, the students uh, had experienced a lot of uh, racism um, from whites who uh, used to drive through the campus because Lynch Street was a thoroughfare that came through the middle of Jackson State's campus. And there were two red lights there from uh, Prentice Street to the west to uh, Dalton Street um, to the east. But anyway, this, you know, whites used to utilize uh, Lynch Street to get to and from work and home. And they used to come through there and they would holler out the N-word and uh, some of the young whites would throw bricks and bottles at the students. And uh, during that particular time period, um, young blacks like myself had gone through a lot of things in our hometown, you know, because Mississippi was and still is Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, we retaliate, retaliated and, um, that particular, um, week we were preparing, preparing for graduation, uh, which never occurred, but, um, the students had retaliated again on the whites and we talked with them. I knew just about everybody on the campus then, my roommates, 
Philip Dotson and Herb Dotson, his brother, um, also some uh, frat brothers and ball players like Cornell Warner and Bill Overton, uh, all of us. But anyway, we talked with the students and said, you know, let's calm down, you know, let's stop it, you know. But anyway, a lot of things happened on May 14th, but the students quieted down and um, to get directly to the point, late during the night of May 14th, which eventually turned into after 12, which made it May 15th, the governor had called in the National Guards, and but the National Guardsmen never came onto Jackson State's campus. However, we heard some uh, marching uh, coming from the west end of uh, Lynch Street down by Prentice, Prentice Street, where uh, um, Stuart Hall is located. And we looked down, and when we saw them march up, they, they were city police officers and highway patrolmen. And a gentleman stepped out and had a bullhorn and asked the question, may I have your attention, please? And when he said that, one of the students threw a bottle, and the bottle burst on the, con- on the uh, Lynch Street. And when that bottle burst, that's when all hell broke loose and the shooting occurred on both sides of the campus. Uh, remember, I said both sides of the campus mm-hmm. on the Alexander Hall side and the B.F. Roberts side, because James Green, the high school student from Jim Hill, was shot and killed uh, behind where I was standing. I was standing with my uh, friends and partners. Uh, at, on the, at the fence, the B.F. Roberts side, and Philip Gibbs was shot and killed on the opposite side in front of Alexander Hall. So they shot on both sides of the campus, and they fired over 400 rounds, and two were killed, and about 12, 13 students were injured. But... Um, to this day, um, nothing was ever done about that. And, I'm, you know, and I'm really um, glad that you asked that question because I've always been uh, a person who tried to seek uh, answers. And I'm, I just want to run this by you, if it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, on February 21st of last year, uh, on the Jeopardy program, the 330 uh, program. Alex Trebek was still living there. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a question. The final question um, to the three contestants was, name, name the college campus where students were shot and killed in May of 1970. And I was listening to her. I said, oh, my. I said, I know what they're going to say. They're going to mm-hmm. say Kent State. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, there were three white contestants, and all three of them, and I don't fault them for this now, um, they gave their answer. And the answer was Kent State. And Alice Trebek told them, well, you all have it correct. So I wrote 
a letter to Alex Trebek on uh, May 6, uh, 2020. And I told him um, about that question, and I told him that they only uh, got 50% of the answer correct. I said, because the other 50% of the answer would have been Jackson State College. Mm-hmm. And I explained to him what happened, that the media just didn't cover it. And he wrote me back mm-hmm. on August 7th. Uh, 2020, and I'm just going to read this real short. He said, Dear James, thanks for your letter letter, and your enlightening me on something that, comma, like most Americans, comma, I was not aware of. We can't correct the show, but I do want to wish you luck with your project. Sincerely, Alex Trebek. And what he was talking about is that on May 15, 2020, we had a virtual uh, commemoration of the shooting. I had mentioned that to him in the letter. But it was just, I didn't expect him to uh, respond or reply to the letter. But I'm really thankful that he did, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is what we all have to do if we want to, you know, to get some things done. We have to speak up and speak out and know our history, know what, what, what has happened. That's what we have to do. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. So I hope that cover, um, briefly what you asked me. Yes, yes, it did. And, you know, in terms of you stating your last statement saying that we have to speak up, we have to speak up. That is yes. that is very valuable, and especially today. Um, and don't get me wrong, there were a lot of historical moments taking place during the 70s, a lot of activism regarding war and, and social activism, like civil rights movement, equal rights. Um, they were all prominent in the country at the time. I look at where we are now, uh, this current era of, again, you know, fighting for social justice, for social change, for for equality still. Not to say that we have not made progress, but I do believe that there has been a shift, but there needs to be more. And um, specifically when it comes to social change and cultural awareness as well. So my question to you is, what do you think we must do as a nation, as a people, what do you think that needs to be done in order to continue this progression um, and not fall into, you know, another sinkhole or get comfortable in where we are? Well, and I'm glad you asked that question also, and I'm glad you, um, your last um, reference statement was and where we are. And that's very important because um, when we look at, when I look at where we are, the thing is, I think we have forgotten where we came from. Mm. And that's our history. You know, I used to tell my students at Jackson State, I taught over there as a part-time instructor for 24 years. And I always told them that you have to always know your history. I said, that's your past. In order to have an understanding 
of where you are. That's your present and a vision for where you're supposed to be going. That's your future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, as a race of people, and I'm speaking of black people now, mm-hmm. historically, and we have to think about this historically, our people used to plan ahead. And, but now we've forgotten where we came from. When I said plan ahead, think about this. Back in doing slavery, our ancestors used to sing the song, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry you home. Well, the master slave, slave owner, he only thought they were just singing gospel songs. He didn't know that they were planning to pick up slaves and take them to the freedom land. He didn't know that. Hmm. But we plan ahead. And I've always said this. I've been in urban and regional planning going on 49 years. Mm-hmm. But I've always said, you know, black folks used to be, and I'll use this, used to be preliminary planners. That's what they were doing. Our ancestors were doing back doing slavery. Now we have become reactionary planners. We wait until a crisis has arisen, and then we try to address it or solve it. White folks are all, they have been and still are right now, preliminary planners. They plan ahead. They plan ahead. So for uh, the awareness of social change and cultural awareness, I, I just feel that we have to understand history. And there's, mm-hmm. a, there's an old saying, and there's one that's all across this country. Everybody knows it. R-I-F. Reading is fundamental. Yep. But we don't read, Mm -hmm. we won't know. You see, we have to, it it used to be historically where it was not allowed Mm -hmm. for slaves and blacks to read or even to learn to read. Frederick Douglass learned to read when he was eight years of age and when the master of that plantation found out, uh, the white lady was just trying to be nice to him and he was a smart young, 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 young boy. But the master told her, don't, uh uh-uh, don't, uh uh-uh, don't teach him that. But it was too late. He had already learned. You see, he had already learned. Mm -hmm. But this is where we have to get back to, we have to get back to where we used to be. You know, that's, that's just my personal opinion about it. Because if we can do that, we can understand a lot of things. I mean, a lot of things and things that we are doing negatively to each other. We're Mm -hmm. doing things now to each other that other people used to do to us free of charge at will. And and talk about that. It doesn't make sense. Talk about some of those things that we are doing amongst our own community that people are also doing (laughs) to us. I'll tell you, 
one of the most diehard things that we are, that as a race of people that we're doing to each other, and especially young black. Mm-hmm. We're killing each other mm-hmm. every day. It's pitiful. We are killing each You disagree with uh, a, a young brother disagrees with a young brother. These are teenagers and adolescents. Mm-hmm. They disagree with each other. Well, one would go to the car and get a pistol and shoot the other and kill them. What they don't understand is this. Well, you just took, when you shot and killed that young brother, you took him out of society and you're out of it also because you're going to prison. Mm-hmm. In the United States, about 34%, nearly 35% of all prisoners yeah. in this country are black. And we only represent about 13.4% of the total population. In Mississippi, um, nearly 40% of the prisons are black, which is pretty close to our percentage of the population. But still, we shouldn't be doing it. It, sh- it shouldn't happen to us. I'll tell you this. Right here in Jackson. Last year we set a record. Yep, we sure did. Over 136 homicides. And you have over about 17 already from last month up mm-hmm. until today. If, if somebody didn't get killed last night. But the thing of it is that, and I guarantee you, We have to understand, I, I wrote the health plans for this state for 10 years, from 1977 to 1986. I saw some things that were going on. I saw where statistically, where, um, where adolescents, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12, 13-year-old little black females, we're getting pregnant and giving birth. I said, wait a minute. I said, I, I can't believe this. And I, when I wrote um, the chapters or the articles on that, that piece of, uh, of the plan, I always called it children having children because that's what it is. But what we have to understand is this. Just, just think about this. A 10-year-old um, female. She's black. She could be white, but she's black. She gets pregnant. She gives birth. First of all, she drops out of school. She's probably in the fifth, uh, uh, fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade. Okay. She drops out of school. Six years from then. The kid is six years of age, getting ready to start school. She's 16. Who's supposed to educate the kid? She dropped out of school. Six more years, the kid is now 12. She's 22. The kid is 12. I guarantee you, and this is statistics, the 10-year-old has had either one or two more uh, babies during that six year, additional six-year period. Guaranteed. That's the cycle. Mm-hmm. Nearly 
between 60 and 65% of the black family household is headed by a female. That's right. In this country. And we wonder why these things are happening. Well, it's not only just that. Look at our neighborhoods also. If you put a person in the slum, that's how they will respond. You see, these neighborhoods, and especially West Jackson, Georgetown, all of these neighborhoods, I'm just speaking of Jackson right now because the, the song says, the gospel song says, sweep around your own front door before you sweep around mine. So let's just deal with right here in Jackson. Revitalize these neighborhoods. And, it would, and, and show some visibility with police officers. They shouldn't be just visible after someone has killed another person. They need to be visible. This is what happened in Washington, D.C. years ago. And Washington, D.C., for the first time, had a, black, a white female police chief, and they implemented um, community crime um, prevention, where the officers were out there meeting the residents, and the residents met the officers, and they got to know each other on a first-name basis. The first year mm-hmm. of the implementation of that program, they had a 63% reduction in homicides and major crimes. Visibility. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, I worked in Louisville, Kentucky um, for three years. I was the first black professional um, city planner to ever work in the history of that city. And that's where the National Crime Prevention Institute is located. I worked hand in hand with the National Crime Prevention Institute, Mr. Dale Shackleford. Um I learned a lot in terms of integrating crime prevention with uh, city planning. It's important. It's very important. Mm-hmm. But staying in school is also important because think about this. During the 60s, that was, that was the primary... Uh, focus, one of the primary focus of black leadership. They were saying, go to college, go to school, get an education. And you know why? Because there was during a period of time when some of the blacks were not going on to college and when they were going to apply for a job, the white man would say, well, you know, you have the experience, but you just don't have the education. Mm-hmm. So when blacks started going going on to college to get an education and even finishing high school, there was no way you couldn't tell that person that they have the experience but didn't have the education because they had both of them there. Mm-hmm. You see? But now we have gotten off into a situation now where our young uh, blacks are dropping out of school. And and I'd like to make a, a statement with that because there's a sense of, of course, lack of involvement when it comes to community. Um, and then, you know, it seems as if sometimes community have to step in to raise a child. So right. there's 
there's conflict already. And on top of that, you have so much more accessibility these days where people sometimes get their opportunity elsewhere. Or sometimes people, you know, get get opportunity from social media or from their skills that they have learned and picked up on their own as far as trade or as far as um, hair or um, construction or just, you know, any, any trade type of ordeal. So with that, I've seen, you know, a, a lot of people where, you know, college just isn't the route, which is to each its own. But I do, you know, understand uh-huh. where, where you're coming from as well when you talk about, you know, we really have to understand the importance of education, not necessarily uh-huh. in the ways of how you get it, but how you retain the information. Um, because again, I even myself, when I was in school, I would see people who would go to class but they wouldn't retain the information or they just be there. So it's like, what difference, right. <laughs> what difference does it make? You know, and then you have the cost of, of attendance. That's just really detrimental for a lot of black people, a lot of black people who are, um, you know, pursuing, wanting to pursue an education. So it's like, we have to talk about those factors too, which is, um, it's one of those, it's like the capitalistic society in which we live in. We have to just make our own, create our own, which is another reason as to why I believe Black entrepreneurship is really on the rise because we see that we can be our own boss. We see that we don't have to stay within this bubble of working for someone else or being a part of this society who believe that we have to answer to them. When we can literally create our own platform, we can create our own, have our own business. Um, and so I would like to bleed on into the progression we've made as Black people. And I understand how, of course, everything is going to be rainbows and sunshines in every community. And especially with, with the Black community, because it just seems like we're always... The target, it seems like we're always talked about. It seems like we are always plastered on a billboard about statistics and categories that we're doing horrible in. But let's talk about the progression we've, we've made because I like to think that there's always growth. You know, there's always um, opportunity and there's always a silver lining. So let's talk about uh, that progression that you've witnessed in your lifetime. What are some positive changes that you're able uh, to say that you've witnessed so far? Well, um, some of them, you know, deal specifically with a lot of the things that you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And and especially what I was talking about earlier, you know, uh, those positive changes in terms of you know, young blacks uh, getting um, educated, you mm-hmm. know, uh, but I see that decreasing a little bit. And I think a lot of that has to do, and that you made some reference to um, the problem of that. Um, black men, first of all, older black men, and those who have, quote, who have made it, mm-hmm. they don't 
communicate and talk with these young brothers mm-hmm. like we used to be talked to. Mm-hmm. You see, they don't they don't do that. They don't take time out to do that. Even when you look back, look around. We don't have real black leaders like we used to have. I'm, I'm sorry. I just have to speak it. I call it the way I see it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of so-called black leaders, if you don't have money for them, mm. they don't show up. If if they can't have publicity, they don't show up. And those two things remind me of a quote from Martin Luther King. He said, we need leaders not in love with money, but in love with justice. Not in love with publicity, but in love with humanity. And and, and we don't have that now. We we don't have that now. Um, I try to make it a point when I see young brothers and young uh, kids, male or female. I try to talk with them, you know, to get to know them, to show them that I care about them. You know, if we don't do this, we're going to lose them. And when we lose them, it's very difficult to bring them back to where they should have been in the first place. You see, we have a job to do. And uh, and I, I tell people this, what I'm getting ready to say, I said routinely, that as a race of people, we're in trouble. We really are. And if we don't wake up and stop thinking about, quote, me, I, and start refocusing on we, mm. us, it's going to be over for us. We have to understand who we are. You know, a lot of people I, 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 I talk with folks, and uh, I ask this question. I say, how many uh, black presidents have we had? And everybody's response has always been, uh, one, uh, Barack Obama. I said, hmm, that's something. Abraham Lincoln's, uh, his mother was from an uh, Ethiopian tribe. Andrew Jackson, his father died before he was born, and uh, she married a black man. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, his mother was uh, a half-breed Indian squaw, and his father was a mulatto. <laughs> hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Warren Harden. Yes. Oh, yeah. See, this is why I say R-I-L. Reading is fundamental. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Warren Harding, uh, Calvin Coolidge, and guess who else? Dwight D. Eisenhower. Hmm. You wait till you check it and you'll see what I'm talking about. I definitely will. Not discrediting That's you, right. but like right. you said, reading is fundamental. So I will definitely it is. Um, read about that. And make sure that I know it's that. fundamental. And what we, you know, I'm glad you mentioned about entrepreneurship. A lot of people here again, I'm going back to the RIF. And I didn't know this until I read this the other day. That the first woman 
to own a bank in this country, in the United States, was a black lady. That's right. Mm -hmm. Black people, we have to understand this, that our people invented most of the things that we are utilizing today, but many of them couldn't get patents during that time. And and it's been... Black um, men and- invented, invented the refrigerator, but we were the one without food. Black man invented the shoe, we were the ones without them. Mm-hmm. A black man invented the, uh, the traffic light. Yeah. I can go on and on. Yeah. Where Ham- I mean, Samson from Jackson State College uh, with the um, cell phone did you know that? I did. You know what not. Samson Hall is? It's named after Dr. The, Samson. The H.T. Samson Library? That's right. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, but you know, um, we have so much to be proud of and mm-hmm. to reflect on. And we have some brilliant um, young brothers and sisters. But we, we're going to lose them if we don't take time out with them. Mm-hmm. And it's not about separation. Um, but white folks have to understand that black folks have contributed to, a lot. to this country. The majority oh, of, we of built everything. This <laughs> yes. We built this country for free. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that Blacks is the only race of people that I know in this country that didn't ask to come to this country, didn't buy a ticket to come. We were so our ancestors were stolen, uh, kidnapped, and bought and brought over here to become slaves. Whoever heard of things like that where one human being owns another human being mm-hmm. or hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of them. Um, it's, Thomas Jefferson had over 180 slaves and he finally admitted to being uh, the father and, and grandfather to black some years ago. Hmm. I mean, you know, when, uh, when, but we have to, I just feel that we as a race of people and especially older black men, we're not going to be here um, eternally. You see, all of us, the, the Lord has a plan for each and every individual on earth. And we just don't know the day nor the hour. So it means to me that I have to do every day that the Lord allows me to awake that I need to be contributing and helping these young brothers and sisters mm-hmm. to show them stop going the negative way. Do this. And they're smart. That's what's so killing about it. Mm-hmm. But if you get in a situation where you can't implement or exhibit 
what you've learned, if you have learned, it is of no good to you. You serve no purpose. Right, right. Then somebody out there in the streets will get a hold of, get a hold of you and cause you, quote, to work for them. And we have to keep in mind, I don't know if people, um, if everybody has seen uh, the movie Godfather, the first one. I actually I'm just gonna mention that one movie, <laughs> but go ahead. You have not? No, and I, it's on my it's on my to do list. Please, please watch. Make sure that you watch and listen mm-hmm. to a very important scene where all of the the five heads of families they gather uh, around Don uh, Cardion, who was Vito Cardion in the movie. He, he's the godfather. Mm-hmm. There, he's trying to bring his son, his youngest boy, Michael, back into the country from Sicily. But the other uh, heads of family, they want to get involved in the drug business. And the godfather didn't want it. But in order to bring his son back, he, he agreed to it. And when he agreed to it, another head of family stood up and he said, I agree with the godfather. I don't like this drug business, but what we're going to do, I don't want it to be around our children or our schools. And this is what he said. Just put it in the darkest neighborhood. Talk about black folk. They're nothing but animals anyway. Hmm. It's important to understand history. It's important. And we have to understand, we don't, uh, and the young brothers need to understand, they don't own the drug business. <laughs> they don't own that. And yeah. then sometimes they wonder, how did I get stopped? How did, how did so-and-so get stopped on uh, I-20 uh, going through Rankin County? Who would who knew that he had drugs on Well, it's called communication. Reading is fundamental. And so what do you think, we've talked about what we should do as a community, as a race, right? And we've talked about ways in which um, we've progressed as well. Um, But what do you think white people must know about Black history? Well, some of the things that I've just mentioned, they need to know or be reminded. A a lot of them do know, they just don't speak it. They know what what we have done. They know what we are capable of doing, you know, intellectually, uh, technologically. But all whites don't think like that. Mm -hmm. But there are still those who want to hold on to the past. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at what happened January 6th at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Had that been all black folks? Oh, yeah. Uh, Knocking those windows out and climbing through that they would have been shot right on the spot and killed. I'm just that. I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, you're exactly right. This is this is America. And black folks like the Tuskegee Airmen. They fought to help this country, to save this country. You see, 
a lot of people don't don't understand something. A lot of things. And here's another thing. I'm just going to give you uh, just a little history. When Thomas Jefferson became president in 1801, he had aligned himself with Napoleon Bonaparte from France. And Napoleon had slicked him out of money to buy arms and ammunition to fight. This was close during the time of the Louisiana Purchase. But a, a black man, a Haitian, by the name of Toussaint Louverture from Haiti, recognized what Napoleon was doing. Napoleon went to Haiti to destroy Haiti and uh, Tucson, Louverture. But Tucson and the Haitians, they defeated Napoleon twice. And in order for the Haitian residents and citizens to be saved after the wars, Napoleon convinced Tucson to come back to France with him, to give himself up to save his people. But Tucson had saved America because Napoleon with France were going to destroy America because Thomas Jefferson had failed. He made a mistake. But it was Tucson Louverture that saved this country. Tucson went back to France with Napoleon. He gave himself up. You know what happened? They killed him in mm. prison. History is so important. And like I said, we have to know where we came from in order to understand where we are and have a vision of where we're going. Yeah, you see? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very important. This is why, and I think that um, the white race and the black race in this country, as well as the Hispanic, we're in the same country. Why should we um, discriminate against each other? Well, because of who we are and who we used to be. <clears throat> That's the only time I feel that we should, that they, whites, should leave the past alone. We are not slaves anymore. Mm-hmm. We're not slaves anymore. You know, we're free. We're free. We've done our, our job. Now we have to do it. We did our job for the white race in this country and still doing it for this country. Now, it, it never should have stopped where we should continue to do our job with our young uh, brothers and sisters because they are the future. Mm-hmm. And if That's just the way I see it. Right. Yes. Thank you for that. If it's one thing that you have experienced and you would never want the future generation to experience, what would that be? (laughs) I'll tell you what, and I know I've made reference to this on several occasions, general reference, but I'm going to specifically say there are many things but some of the most crucial events that happened 
to me that I would never want to happen to another black person, especially a black, young black male. It's the, first of all, I went through some racial discrimination in my hometown of Pickville, Mississippi, as well as all other blacks growing up. Okay? That was understandable during that particular time because we just, as young kids, we didn't understand why when we saw a police vehicle driving in the black neighborhoods during the late 50s and 60s that we should hide. We don't need to... uh, don't don't let them see you. They might do something to you. I came to Jackson State, and what happened on May 15, 1970, the shooting and the killing that took place there, I never want that to happen again, and not for any young brother or sister to ever see that again. I saw and experienced racial discrimination in San Jose, California. When I went to grad school there, I had a scholarship to go to grad school there. I became, after I graduated, I became the first black professional city planner to work in San Jose, California. But I went through more racial discrimination. I never thought that would happen in California. Mm -hmm. But it happened. I left there. I was recruited by the planning commissioner, the director, Louisville and Jefferson County Planning Commission in Louisville, Kentucky, to accept the position there to be the first black professional city planner in the history of Louisville, Kentucky. And I accepted the position because I had some friends there, about three or four. And I went through my third years when I went through the racial discrimination that I never thought I would see. And you know who it came from? The very uh, man who flew to San Francisco, California, to interview me for the position, the director of the Louisville and Jefferson County Planning Commission. Hmm. I, I was hurt so bad, all of those particular um, events in Picayune, Mississippi, at Jackson State, by what the white police officers and the highway patrolmen did by shooting up the campus and killing two students and wounding 12, 13. The discrimination in San Jose, California. The discrimination in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And then I came back to Mississippi and I accepted a position with the former Mississippi Health Systems Agency, and I was director of planning and administration, planning and research for that uh, agency. I was, was then and still have been the only black person to oversee and develop the writing of the health plans for the state of Mississippi for 10 years. But I went through discrimination there also. That's right. In those moments, how did you stay afloat? Let me tell you something. You have to, for me, it was being a man and stay strong. 
don't get weak. Don't allow what you've gone through to break you down. Stand up. Speak out, which I did in each one of those occasions. In each one. In each one. I stood up. I stood up. And I still stand up because I know who I am. I know who I am. Hmm. There's a, uh, I write what most people call poems. I call them black experiences. And one that I wrote, I wrote it in 1973, San Jose, California. And it's called What I Think. And it says, do you, do you really think you're fooling me with your smiles? I can see to you for miles and miles. I do my job as good as I can, but I can do better if I were treated like a man. You see, we struggled out of slavery, and yet you put us into poverty. Then you take away our jobs and make us commit a robbery. You see, the systems, the criminals, should be put behind bars, but we keep waiting on brighter days and falling stars. You see, I'm not your nigga, nor your token boy, so you better go and find you another toy. I'm tired of thinking that I'm the cause of poor housing, slums, ghettos, unemployment, and welfare, because you hold all the riches in this land, and it's time that I get my share. So you can take me to your club and sucker me with a drink, but I'll proudly sip your liquor and tell you what I think. Wow. I wrote that in 1973. And I wrote it because of the white supervisors who kept trying to slick me, smiling, even wanting to change, quote, my name from James to Jim. Hmm. When they were, he would call, my supervisor would stand over me and say, hi, Jim. I never would turn around. I never told him my name was Jim. It was always James. My mother and father never called me Jim. They called me James. But I wrote that about them. I never changed. I never changed. As a matter of fact, the newspaper published the poem. Sure did. And this is my last question. What's your advice to the younger generation or the generation that will continue to live on beyond your lifetime and now to the generation now that is in control or that is that's in the positions and um, the roles in which they could influence others what's your message well it's very very simple and especially looking at what's happening and what what i've spoken about Previously, first of all, I would um, tell them, not ask them, but tell them, stop killing each other. Stay in school. Don't drop out. Get an education. Learn your history. Know where you came from. That will, that will give you the understanding and the knowledge of who you are. They can do so much. The next generation has to set the standard. 
But we, and this is what I've mentioned before, we, when I say we, I'm talking about especially older uh, black men, either educated black men, those who have achieved and accomplished what they have. You have blacks with businesses. Help these young brothers. Talk with them. We have to show them that we care about them. But we have to do the same for the young females as well. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a typical example of something. Um, And that was was a very good question. It's been a year since we have, at my church, I belong to Link Street, CME Church. It's been a year since this virus been out that we uh, have been in uh, in-person church service. We do everything virtually now on Zoom. However, prior to the virus, every Sunday when I would see the little kids, the little girls, the little boys, the adolescent boys and girls, the teenage boys, especially the teenage boys, I would always, if they walked past me, now the little kids always ran up to, they called me Uncle Lap. They always ran up to me to give me a hug. All of them. Anybody in my church would tell you this. The teenage Boys, if they walk past me without speaking, all I would do, I would say, is something wrong with you? And they would turn, oh, Mr. Lap, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How you doing, Mr. Lap? I said, all right. Never do that. Always speak to people. I always tell them, you know, I was brought up that way. There were 15 family members living in the same household when I was coming up. It was my mother and my father and their four children. My uncle, his wife, and their four children. That's 12. My grandmother, that's 13. And two other uncles, 15. 15 family members Mm. in the same household. But we learned this as kids. There were eight kids there. When brown folks were talking when I was coming up, kids didn't. Uh, hang around, didn't uh, be around when grown folks talk. Because our mother and father and grandmother would say, don't you hear grown folks talking? You knew to leave out. That was a part of growing up. And it was always, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Not yeah, no. Yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And it wasn't just to family members who were grown you did that out in the community because that's when everything was a family. That's when um, it took the village to raise this child. Mm-hmm. You see, mm-hmm. it took the it was the village that raised the child. I'll never forget this. We as adolescents, we used to take rocks. There was an old building with all the windows out. We used to take rocks and throw rocks and knock out uh, the remaining windows. And this lady, elderly lady named uh, <laughs> Miss Put, she used to be sitting on a porch and she would say, y'all get over here. Get over here. And we would say, oh, Miss Put, shut up. Get over here and give me, bring some switches while you're over here. And you bring, better not bring no small ones. <laughs> and she 
would, I'm serious, and she would whip our butt. And that was during the time when the telephones were party lines. That's when everybody could hear everybody's conversation. Okay? Miss Putin would whip us, send us home. On the way home, she's already calling mother, my mother and father to tell them what we've just done. Me and my brother and my cousins and mm-hmm. other friends, they're going home. They're going to get another whip. My mother and father, they're standing up there on the, at, uh, at the door on the steps waiting on us with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you learn. Mm-hmm. You learn. Mm-hmm. That's a different way of teaching and having um, um, our young brothers and sisters to learn. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of time we need to keep in mind how certain things change. If you remember, they took paddling out of the school system. That was, you know, when they did that right after integration uh, Mm. was passed in this state. That was around 69, 70, 71. They took paddling out because they didn't want black teachers uh, paddling their kids. No. That was taken out. That's right. But those are the things that I would recommend to the next generation, the young generation, you know, first of all, stop killing each other. Start loving each other, caring for each other, helping each other. Know where you came from. That's your history. Get an education. Succeed, you see, and live life the way it's supposed to be lived. Help each other. Don't hurt each other. Help each other. That's what I would say to them. And I thank you for all of what you just said and just everything that you've stated throughout this episode because you spoke about the need to speak up. You spoke about uh, the reason why we should continue to progress ways that we can progress, what we need to do in order for us not to stay stagnant. And you just spoke so much volume about the importance of knowing Black history, not just within our own race, but every race, everywhere. That's right everywhere so i really appreciate your testimony i really appreciate your stories i really appreciate the advice that you've given us and i really hope that it'll inspire the listeners just as it has inspired me and i'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation and although you know with the snow we still made it work because this was a virtual zoom And so um, I just really appreciate your time. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart because this was an episode where of enlightenment, this, like I said, this inspired me to just continue on my path of 
advocating, of making sure that I inspire, making sure that I help, that I teach, that I love. Uh So all of those things, it allowed me to remember to just keep going. And so I thank you for that. And I thank you for, again, everything that you stated. And I hope everyone who has listened to this will gain a sense of hope, a sense of accountability, and also a sense of direction. So thank you so, 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 so much. And I really appreciate it. Well, let me say thank you also, because, and I want any and everyone to hear what I'm about to say. I, I just feel that um, your future is very bright. Um, you you have a lot to contribute uh, to society and to people, not just black people, but to people, period. Your personality, everything. Your knowledge is bright. That's what I see. Thank you so much. I really do, and I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate you as well. And that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and I'll see you all in the next episode of Take a Seat. In the meantime, be blessed, y'all.